you were asked, where does the Christmas story begin? Uh, you probably could say, well, the Bible, right? And you would be right. It is in the Bible. Um, most people uh, would say, a little more specifically, that the Christmas story uh, is in the Gospels. That's where it begins. That's where the story begins, is in the Gospels. But that wouldn't be exactly accurate. It's um, actually a little older than that. Uh, you would be correct that it is in the Word of God, but the story that we refer to as Christmas is actually much older than where we see it appear in the Gospels. The story of Christmas begins in the Old Testament as far back as the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. And so this morning, as we, as we just take a moment to look at that beginning of this Christmas story, it kind of begs the question is, what cause or what was the reason or what necessitated that Jesus had to be born, that Jesus had to come, that it was necessary for the entrance of the Son of God to be birthed in this little uh, village of Bethlehem. Um, I think the Bible's pretty clear that his entrance into the world, his birth, was the culmination of thousands of years of the predetermined plan of God. God's timeline. It wasn't just random. It wasn't just accidental. It wasn't just never expected. But it was all part of an intentional, deliberate, predestined, predetermined plan of God. I think Paul was, really makes this clear in Galatians 4.4. 4. Look at the scripture on the screen. <clears throat> and this is from the New Living Translation. But when the right time came, the right time, not a minute before, not a minute later, the right time came, what happened? God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. What is Paul saying in Galatians 4.4? 4? He's saying that the right time came, that the sovereign God, think with me, predetermined, predestined, planned, worked, designed, coordinated people, coordinated events, coordinated circumstances, uh, worked through wars, worked through peacetime, coordinated and worked through marriages, births, deaths, good kings, bad kings, nations, empires, victories, tragedies, good choices, bad choices, successes, and we could just wrap it all up and just say a lot of sin. God's purpose navigated all of those circumstances because God had a purpose that he had designed in bringing forth his son. And so when we have our Bibles, the Bible might be kind of a strange thing to you. It might be something kind of like a religious thing you might pull out every once in a while. Um, might be something you blow the dust off or forget that it's in the glove compartment. It's been there since the last month when you came to church and you ought to pull it out and read it every once in a while. Uh, but the Bible is a testimony of God's story from beginning to end. 
You could say that the Bible, while it is part, multiple parts, 66 books, the Bible has one timeline, one storyline of something that God has predetermined and that God is doing. And so the question that we've asked is, where does the Christmas story begin? Well, really, it begins in eternity with the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth that Revelation tells us. But from our sense and our record that we have that God has given us, <clears throat> the first promise of a redeemer is found in Genesis 3.15. Now, I don't have the time to kind of work through all the pieces surrounding that and all, but, but, but the point that I want us to see in Genesis 3.15, if you would look with me uh, there on the screen, the, the Bible says, and remember just in context, Genesis 3 is the dark chapter of humanity's fall into sin and rebellion against God. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, and I take that to be literal historical people because Jesus took them as literal historical people. And I kind of think he knows what he's talking about, okay? He was there. Um, <clears throat> and so this verse 15 is kind of, it, it, I'm taking it here and just paraphrase what's around it, is this is part of that when God uh, cursed we could say curse, and I don't mean he said bad words, meaning that he cursed, that he spoke a verdict of judgment against the serpent, who was Satan. Remember the temptation and the leading of Eve into sin? He spoke a curse or a word of judgment to the serpent. He spoke a word of curse to Eve, and then he spoke a word of curse to Adam and all of his offspring. That's important because when you come to places like Romans 5 that speaks about how we were once all in Adam, but now we are in Christ, that connection of understanding what is happening in Genesis 3 is pivotal to understanding the gospel itself, all right? But that's another time, another place, hopefully not another church, but anyway. Um, but what I want you to see in this passage here is Moses is the author of the first five books of the Old Testament. And he's the author of Genesis. And by the Holy Spirit, that in this verse, he is telling us, the Lord is telling us, in this, the Lord speaking this judgment into this situation, that God is speaking this judgment to the serpent, verse 15, when he says, I will put enmity. That means I will put hostility. I will put conflict, even hatred, that God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, her offspring, the woman's offspring. He, this one that will come, will bruise your head. Really, bruise is, is a little nicer word. It really should be literally crush your head. How many of you saw the movie, um, The Passion of the Christ? It was okay, because there was a lot of unbiblical things they imported into that. But for the most part, it was probably one of the most profound dramatizations of the crucifixion and the events. There was a lot of other stuff that 
is imported in there. But do you remember that scene that opens up? And if you're like me, uh, you're watching the movie, which I remember the first time I went and saw the movie, I really didn't feel like I could sit there and eat popcorn and drink a big drink and watch this. It just seemed bizarre, all right? But other people were doing it. So if you did it, you're okay. You're under grace. <clears throat> but it just seemed like a weird thing to do. Like I was watching Star Wars. It, I just felt like I knew, you know, this was going to be intense. And you remember that scene where Jesus is praying? And you know, it's dark and the music is playing, and the serpent, and you see that snake, and you know, just from a movie, you know something's getting ready to happen, right? And do you remember as he stands up, and do you remember when he stomps his foot on the head of that serpent, and the sound? Now, if you're like me, you, you know, you did a little Pentecostal jump, right? You, you, you shook out of your chair, because it was such a dramatic moment, and that was really such a wonderful picture of what Genesis 3.15 is telling us, that the Messiah would crush, that wasn't very loud because we got carpet, but would crush the head of the serpent. And so here we see the beginning, that deliverance, that God, where does the Christmas story begin? It begins here, that this deliverance would come through the seed of the woman, not Eve, but a woman that was speaking, in essence, prophetically, that this was, this was the first prophecy, if you will, of the coming of a deliverer, Messiah. In theology, they call this the proto-evangelium, which just means the first gospel. Proto-first, evangelium, gospel, or good news. This is the first good news of what God was going to do. And you could almost say that from Genesis 3.15, and there's some filler in there, but it really, the action picks up in Genesis 12 with Abraham. But we really could say from Genesis 3.15 forward, God is working out his predetermined, predesigned plan of bringing forth and fulfilling the covenant or the promise that he makes beginning here in this verse. A lot more around that. But what we see is the Messiah would come. And notice what it says about this Messiah. The Lord in this garden moment is speaking to the serpent or Satan. And he says, you shall, uh, he shall bruise your head, crush it, destroy and you shall bruise his heel. A bruising of the heel is not as fatal as a crushing of the head. So it's acknowledging that the one that is to come, you will bruise his heel. You, he will suffer. He will experience pain. He will experience the agony that you will inflict on him, but it will not be fatal. But the fatality in the story serpent, is on you because he will crush and destroy your head. So really from Genesis all through the Old Testament, there has been the anticipation of the Messiah. I like to say it this way. 
there's been the anticipation of the serpent crusher. The one that was going to come and crush the head of the serpent. The one that was going to come that God himself promised that was going to come and set things back to God's intended purpose and plan. And so if we fast forward from the Gospels and Genesis, rather, to Isaiah 53, a lot of, but just a little sampling here. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, remember this, all of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. What is that? Thousands, a couple of thousands years later, what is Isaiah the prophet continuing? And again, there's multiple pieces before that, but this is so familiar. What is Isaiah perpetuating? What is he continuing? He's continuing the timeline. He's continuing the storyline of the serpent crusher, the one who is to come that Genesis 3.15 spoke about. Isaiah is acknowledging what really Genesis 3.15 acknowledged in Scripture testifies, that we are all sinful. We are all estranged from our Maker. We need a Savior. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot redeem ourselves. The Bible speaks about that we have inherited the sinful nature of our first parents, Adam and Eve. That bloodline disease, if you would call it that, has been given all through generations to generation, even to us today. We are all inheritors, sadly, of that sinful inheritance and downline. That's why, and we've talked about this previous, that's why the virgin birth is so crucial and was necessary. Because the virgin birth, the Messiah, had to be born of a virgin. Remember in verse 35 of Luke chapter 1, when Mary, being a virgin, she had not had the consummation of sexual relations between her and Joseph, who she was betrothed to. And that word betrothed is a little bit more legal than our engagement. A little bit more weighty. That's the reason, remember, when he sought to put her away legally, there was some legality in that betrothal relationship. Even though they were legally bound in the eyes of the Jewish law, they had yet consummated that marriage that would be consummated after the marriage ceremony itself. And so Mary, when she heard Gabriel said, you would be with child, she said just very spontaneously, how can this be? First, she says, I am a virgin. And the angel Gabriel, speaking the words of the Spirit, said in verse 35 that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and cause this miracle to take place. And so that's the reason the virgin birth is so crucial because this one that is to come, this one that has been predetermined by God, the very God of very God, that he could not carry a sinful nature himself. Because that means that his atonement or his sacrifice 
would be worthless or meaningless. He had to be a pure, to use other biblical language, he had to be a pure, spotless lamb, to use Old Testament analogy or picture. Let me say it this way. Jesus was born, pay attention, this is important, this will be on the test. Jesus was born into our human race. He was not born from our human race. You with me? He had to come from outside. He was born into humanity, but he was not born from humanity. So we're, we, like Mary, we can magnify the Lord over this wonderful news that Jesus Christ was sent to die as the solution for our sins, to give us both forgiveness and transformation. You remember John 1 says in the Word, the Word was, Jesus was the Word, and He was in the beginning, and how He came and dwelt among us. He came and dwelt among us, became humanity, became God in the flesh. And so the story of Christmas, the story of redemption, begins back in Genesis, Genesis 3.15. And I love the fact somebody said this, much smarter than I, and said, it begins with the first sin in Genesis 3.15 because God's grace has been available from the very start to all that would receive it. God's grace has been there from the very beginning. The drama of redemption is unfolding and unfolds throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Now, you might be saying, but wait a minute, I thought we were talking about Mary. Where did she get? She, we've, have we lost Mary in this whole thing? No, go back to Luke 1. Look back at verse 54 of Luke chapter 1. Remember what she's saying. She's giving a word of worship. She's giving a word of praise. And she says, as she concludes this Magnificat, this, this anthem of worship, she says, he has helped his servant Israel, and remembered to be mercy, for he made this promise. He made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. When you read stuff like that, it should clue you is that how did Abraham get in this story? How did, how did he get in here? What, what does he have to do with anything? That she brings Abraham into the story. Well, in Genesis chapter 12, as I said, even though we see that early gospel prophecy in Genesis 3.15, fast forward to Genesis 12, and God calls an elderly couple by the name of Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarah. And they were called to be God's bridge, that God was going to do something miraculous through them that God was going to build a bridge of grace to a broken and fallen sinful world. And the promise that we remember in Genesis 12, uh, in Genesis 12, look at just a reminder, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. How would you like to go on a trip? And they say, where are we going? I don't know. I'll show you when we get there. <clears throat> and the Lord says, I will make of you, 
Abraham, Abram, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now to look at this. And in you, in you, all the families of the earth shall be what? Shall be a bless. Not just one nation. <clears throat> Not just one people. One ethnicity. He says, in you, in your uh, downline, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we go back to Mary in that verse 55, and she's recognizing a great truth in this Magnificat worship of magnifying the Lord. She's recognizing and worshiping the God who is faithful to his covenant promise. That through the one, this one, Mary's child, we're talking about Mary, this child, the blessings to the world that God promised to Abraham, that covenant of Genesis 12, that would come through one specific descendant that would have to be connected and tied to Abraham, the offspring of Abraham, the Messiah, Jesus, and through him, the world would receive the blessings of God, the blessings of God's grace, and the blessing of God's redemptive mercy. Through that Abraham. And Mary is connecting the dots. Remember, Mary is Jewish. She understands the scriptures. Now, we sing, Mary, did you know? Certainly, there's a lot of things she didn't know. But in one sense, Mary, did you know? Yeah, yeah, she did. Because the Lord told her. Now, didn't tell her about walking on water and some of those other things that the song is so beautifully depicts. But Mary knew more than we give her credit for because the Lord revealed that to her. And even in this worshipful anthem, she's expressing a theology way beyond her years. I like the thought of that Mary herself is pregnant with child, but in these words of verse 54, these words are pregnant with wonderful truth concerning God's faithfulness and his covenant. And we don't want to miss it. So the Bible says, <clears throat> how would the one promised that we spoke of earlier back in Genesis that kind of set the, the thing moving forward, how would the one promised in Genesis 3.15 be recognized? Well, there's all sorts of prophecies and scriptures, but let me just suggest a couple of them. One of the ways that this Messiah would be recognized is that he would come from one particular tribe of Israel. 
that this one that is promised would come from one particular tribe of Israel. Look at something that Moses records in Genesis 49, verse 10. I like the New King James on this for a particular reason. The word of the Lord that Moses recorded here through the the word of the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, says that the scepter, again, this is a a word speaking of this serpent crusher that is to come way much further down the line. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. I just like that it mentions until Shiloh comes and to him, speaking of this future Messiah, this one, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Some Jewish scholars testify how the rabbis themselves of old recognized that the name Shiloh that is used here in the New King James was a reference to the Messiah and the Redeemer that was promised to Israel and consequently promised to the nations through Israel. Look at that same verse in the new NIV. A little different, but it's worth noting here. The NIV of Genesis 49.10 says, the scepter will not depart from Judah. Again, where's he coming from? The tribe of where? Judah, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. This isn't just anybody. This isn't just somebody who's going to win a landslide election. This is somebody that all the nations will be in obedience and submitted to this one who is to come. You see, these promises, and there's, again, depending on how you count, 65, 70, Old Testament prophecies or expectations that the Jewish people had in anticipation and an expectation that regardless of whether they were in good times, bad times, exiled times, everything seemed to be lost, there was, this, there was this grasp that God had spoken, that God had made a promise, that God said there would be one who would come and destroy, crush the head of the serpent. We don't see him. In fact, our entire situation looks pretty bad. Maybe this is just a bunch of fairy tales, but they know God. And they know that what God says, he will bring to pass. And this was fulfilled when the child came and was born. And Mary, speaking of this promise, this covenant that God spoke to Abraham. She's connecting those dots. The Bible says in John 1.11 that this Messiah came to his own. But what? His own. 
did not receive him. But there's a, another qualification I'll just mention, and that's the qualification that the Messiah would be from would be a son of David. He would also be a son of David. He would continue and be connected and be a descendant of David. Now, David had a lot of sons, but none of them met the qualification that this son of David would meet. In fact, there was a, there's a prophecy that Nathan gave to King David. Do you remember Nathan? Remember where he came into prominence when he confronted King David over his adultery? Well, Nathan gives David a prophetic word, and it's on the screen in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The word of the Lord through the prophet Nathan says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, that's a beautiful description of death, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up, what does it say? He's dead, he's gone, but the Lord says, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, from your lineage, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Do you remember in context, David wants to build the Lord, what? David wants to build the Lord a house. He wants to build the Lord a temple. Remember, he looks at the opulence of where he lives and says, it just isn't right that I live in such splendor and glory and the Lord does not have a house. And he's not saying that God, we gotta put God in a little box. He's just saying a place in which God is to be worshiped and honored. You with me? And in a sense, the Lord says, you can't build me a house. You can't build something that big. But I will, David, I will build you a house. And that's what he says, where he says that I will build a house. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. And the Lord says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, that couldn't be Solomon. That couldn't be Solomon's sons. That couldn't be some human inheritor because they didn't last forever, did they? So he must be speaking, the Lord through his prophet must be speaking about someone else. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house, verse 16, and your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me and your throne shall be established forever. Do you see the timeline? It's, it's moving along. God's covenant, God's promise, God is orchestrating, determining, planning, developing, working through the best that Satan could muster will not in any way deter or detract from the sovereign predetermined plan of God that God was going to bring forth one who would be the inheritor of these promises and would destroy the works of the enemy. 
God is on the move. God is a God of action. And God, even here, thousands of years later, where these words of David are coming, did David totally grasp this? Probably not. But God says, I'm going to establish through you. So this coming one, he's got to be through the tribe of Judah, and he also has to be one who is a son of David. I know this is probably a little bit out of order, but I just was reminded of something Moses said kind of back when. I should have put it earlier. But remember, even back when in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, won't be me, from among your fellow Israelites. What is, what's the thing? Is that God is working through a particular time, working through a particular people, working through a particular nation. God is bringing forth this one that would be born, that Mary is carrying, and she says these words, that God is a fulfiller of his promises, of his covenant that he made to Abraham. And again, that is so pregnant with meaning because Mary is saying, I am receiving the culmination of all of these thousands of years. All these prophets who, who the Bible says strain to look at the meaning of what these things were, but it was not given to them. Mary says, I am seeing the fulfillment of God's covenant. This prophet, he couldn't be like Moses. He couldn't be like Samuel. He couldn't be like Isaiah. He couldn't be like Ezekiel. He couldn't be like Elijah. Why? They all died. They all died. That's a problem. If you're going to be a forever kind of person, you've got to live forever. But he wasn't talking about any of them. He was talking about the one who would give his life, who would die as a substitute, and who would rise from the grave, who would rise from the dead. That's what Paul says. This is proof positive, Romans 1.4. He says, and it was declared to be, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness. How? Why? By his resurrection from the dead. There was a lot of people that came claiming to be Messiah. Just like there's a lot of kooks out there now that claim to be some Messiah embodiment of God. But there's just one little problem. They all die. They all die. The gods of culture and politics, I mean, I assume he's still there, at least his body. You go to Moscow and Lenin, the leader and founder of the Russian Revolution, they got his body full of embalming fluid and probably a wax body, but they can go in there and what are they looking at? They're going in there looking at a dead body. There is no mausoleum for Jesus. There's no tourist site to view the body of Jesus because this prophet that Moses spoke about prophetically would rise from the dead. So 
we come to this Mary and this anthem of worship and the significance of her words, Mary being a Jew herself, realizing that this God is a fulfillment of all these years of this wonderful promise. You remember the hymn or the Christmas song that maybe we'll sing Christmas Eve, I'm not sure, O little town of Bethlehem, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. And here, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Jesus said something that's worth inputting here in John 4. He encountered a woman at the well. And she was a Samaritan woman. And he says something. He says, you Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. While we Jews, we know all about him. And notice what he says. For, for salvation comes where? Through the Jews. The covenantal purposes, plan of God has come through the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. Jesus is letting the Samaritan woman know that salvation has its origins in God's promises to the Jewish people. Why are we talking about Abraham and the Old Testament when we should be talking about candy canes and little drummer boys? Because all that's not in the Bible, hello, all right? And, and I've, I find it troubling that so many Christians don't connect any of these dots at relating and understanding that the purposes of God that began in Genesis have been woven, developed all the way through this glorious story in this book that what Mary says in that one verse has such profound, historical, theological, glorious truth in that one little statement that God kept his promise that he made to Abraham. He may say, well, that's great for the Jews, right? Because we're not, you know, Abraham, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're not a part of that. No, 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 no. If you're a believer, you very much are a part of that. Remember what the Bible says in, and we'll close with this, in Galatians 3. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Remember this, we know this part. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, right? But look at verse 29. And now, he's speaking to, by the way, Galatia, the book of Galatians. Those are not Jews. They're Gentiles that he's writing to. Gentiles are not Jews. But he says to them, and now 
non-Jews, that you belong to Christ, that you belong to Christ, you, can we say we? We are the, what? True children of Abraham. You, we, us, are his heirs. And God's promise to Abraham belongs to us. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Three takeaways. Because God fulfills his covenant promise, number one, we can trust him and that God always keeps his word. You may feel like God is kind of forgotten, abandoned. You pray, things you've been praying for for years. Numbers 23, 19 says that God is not a man, so he does not lie, he is not human, so he does not change his mind. He has, he, has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? Mary reminds us that God is worthy of our trust and that he will keep his word. He may not deliver it like Amazon the next day. Those poor drivers. But God always keeps his word. Another takeaway is that God made a way for us to be reconciled through Jesus Christ. We read this birth, and we don't, again, the weight of all that history is seen in thee tonight. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And because God fulfills his covenant promise, he accepts all, thirdly, he accepts all, do I not have that up there? The covenant promise to Abraham is ours. The covenant promise is ours, ours, if we what? We receive Jesus Christ by faith. Isn't that what Romans 14 said? That Abraham was only a child of God because of faith? What's another word for faith? Trust. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ for yourself? I don't mean you believe in Jesus like you believe in Abraham Lincoln and George Washington, but it means that you have made a conscious choice of, of trusting with your life. And you know how that is proof positive? is because your life begins to show that you have done this. Does that mean you're perfect overnight? No, you're never going to be perfect in one sense until you're with Christ. We're perfect right now in Jesus. We're perfect right now in Jesus. But if you're outside of Jesus, you're outside of the only avenue, the only way that God has purpose for you to be made one, reconciled, saved, whatever word you want to use, to him. God doesn't have plan B's. This is it. He accepts all who will receive his only son by faith as their Lord and Savior. The promises 
Look at Romans 4.16. Paul says it so much better than I can. He says, so the promise, I was trying to quote this and realized I hadn't read it yet. Last verse. Look at this. And remember again, who is Paul writing to? Romans, the book of Romans. He's writing to Christians in Rome. They are not Jews. They're not ethnically descendants of Abraham. But how are they descendants of Abraham? He tells us just like us. He says, verse 16, so the promise, that promise that Mary magnifies the Lord, so the promise is received by what? Faith. It is given as a free gift. And we are are all certain to receive it whether or not we live according to the law of Moses. Because guess what? The promise was never dependent on the law of Moses. We are certain to receive it. And the law of Moses has no bearing on it whatsoever. But look at this. If, if we what? Have faith like Abraham's. For Abraham, this Abraham that Mary mentions in this Magnificat, for Abraham is the father of all who believe. But you didn't know there was so much in those handful of words in verse 54 when she connects history to the miracle in her body and says, God keeps his word. Let's stand and let's pray. If you would just refrain from leaving early, we're just going to be dismissed in a moment, but no distractions, no... If everybody could just out of just... I guess just maybe a little bit of privacy in these moments. Bow your head. And if you're a Christian, pray for God's Spirit to work on somebody who's not. And if you're not a follower of Christ, God has given you through Jesus the best gift you'll ever get at Christmas or any other day of the year. And that is Christ. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, would you just pray in your own heart a simple prayer? Lord Jesus, come into my life. Save me, make me new. I believe that you're the one, the Messiah, the one that has been given. Lord, not just to take away the sins of the world, but God, to take away my sin. I want you to come into my life. I want you to change me, make me a new creation. As I stand at the end of one year and beginning another year, Lord, let me go into this new year. What the Bible says is a new creation in Christ. Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. Make me new. 
And I pray and ask these, this, this, this prayer for your grace in Jesus' name. Father, if there's anyone who has prayed that prayer, whether it's the first time or God, they need just a renewed sense of your grace in their life. Lord, I believe that you hear those prayers. Lord, thank you that you're a God of covenant making faithfulness. That God, that the word that you give, you always keep. God, that's so important to me and I know others that follow after you that when we open God, your word full of promises, full of the truths of God. Lord, let this just bolster, Lord, the confidence that God is true, that God has spoken, that God has brought forth, Lord, my hope and my redemption in this child that was born on this Christmas night. Lord, Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Mary. God, thank you for her submission to a pretty awesome, impossible word. Lord, that we just gotta accept, but she says, let it be. Let it be what your word has said. Lord, Mary is our example as a fellow sister in Christ. But Lord, may we be reminded of her humility, her grace, her submission to the call of God on her life. Thank you for Mary. Thank you for using her and recording these words of worship. God, for us here in 2019, Lord, that we can magnify the Lord, that you are indeed Emmanuel, God with us. Let's sing that as we close this morning. Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us.